Welcome to Failure to Stop. This is the Comm Center with Drew Breezy. Tonight, we have a special guest on the show. Uh, Daniel from Police Law News is going to join us. We're going to talk about some things in the news. We're also going to break down the case recently out of Hillsborough, Hillsborough County Sheriff's Office in Florida, where two deputies uh, did a well-being check on someone there who fled the scene in a vehicle and then returned and struck both of them. We mentioned it briefly last week on the show. All this and what it means for your weekend tonight on the Comm Center. The growing calls across the nation to defund the police. To end policing as we know it. Shootings in New York City have more than doubled this year. Guns up and giddy up. Welcome, Failure to Stop Wolfpack. This is the Comp Center with Drew Breezy. I'm John. I'm a 911 dispatcher. I've been active in the field tonight. We've also got Drew Breezy here. Uh, he is uh, currently getting ready for the show. He's backstage joining us. Also tonight is our special guest, Daniel. I'll go ahead and let you introduce yourself. Go ahead, sir. Hey, thank you so much for having me on. My name is Daniel. Uh, I'm a, a police officer. I've been on about 19 years, getting ready to retire. I've got a master's degree in criminal justice, a law degree, and uh, I run the social media websites, uh, uh, Police Law News. I also write over on Substack over at Police Law Newsletter, and I do a live show over on the YouTube channel, uh, Copwatch TV. Uh, thank you for introducing yourself. I appreciate it. Where can they find you on Instagram? Isn't it Police Law News? Is that Yeah, they can find me everywhere um, at uh, Police Law News. Okay. Uh, very interested in having you on the show. I love your takes. Actually, what's funny is, is that you'd think I, that I would not be someone that would necessarily be a huge fan of yours, although I am, because I'm steeped in this stuff every week. Like every week, it's basically my job to know what's going on. And uh, frankly, uh, you do a lot of the script writing around here, although uh, you do not get paid for it. Uh, to know what's going on in the news, uh, I'm, I'm constantly looking to you uh, to know what's going on. In fact, today, uh, I was driving home to do the show and uh, you were having a, a, a take on some spicy video. Was it out of uh, North Carolina where some police officers there were uh, doing some tactical strikes on someone? I might be getting the details wrong because I was I admit it. I was watching it probably, you know, while I was driving a little bit. So I didn't I didn't like write down details, uh, but I really enjoyed that take you had. Uh, but one thing I wanted to get to for sure. Uh, is that you had a you had an update on the uh, Derek Chauvin case? Failure to stop exists because we were responding to 2021 and the George Floyd case and uh, the arrest and the trial and the conviction of Derek Chauvin. He's now appealing his case, and you had some interesting takes on that, Daniel. I'd love for you to share with our audience what those were. Yeah, thank you so much. So, so basically, when it comes to this Derek Chauvin case, you know, he was convicted in 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 two different two different ways. So, he was convicted in state court of second degree murder, third degree murder, and second degree manslaughter on state level charges. And after that conviction, he was sentenced to about twenty one years in jail. They also went and charged him on the federal level. So, they charged him with essentially federal civil rights violations as well. Well, after he was convicted in state court, he went ahead and pled guilty to those federal charges as well. And the reason that he he 
pled guilty to those charges is because he was able to negotiate essentially, you know, where he would be in prison because being in federal prison is a lot better than being in state prison. So after his conviction, he basically has two different appeals going. So he has an appeal for the, the state case and then also an appeal for the, the federal case. The appeal for the federal case is what we have now. And, and essentially, just, just to let you know what that is a little bit, is he's basically saying that there is some doctor that he found recently who basically has a new theory of how George Floyd died. He said that George Floyd had some type of a some type of a tumor and that he actually died because of this tumor, not because of the actions of Derek Chauvin or any of the police officers there on scene. And it's because that's the reason why he, 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 George Floyd died. And basically what Derek Chauvin is saying, he's saying, if I knew this, and even more important, if the jury knew this, there is no way that I would have been convicted. And therefore I never would have pled guilty to those federal charges. Um, so that's his appeal when it comes to the, the federal case. Now, let me ask you this, uh, this evidence about him having a brain tumor there's there's no way that just came to life now i mean this we're on three years now so was this some kind of evidence that was uh exculpatory and and not turned over to the defense would that be a brady violation i, I i'm not i'm not a heavy hitter like you so could you explain to me why this evidence would only be coming to light now that's that that's an, an excellent question so Basically, if the prosecutor knew about this, if they had this information and failed to share it with with the defense team, that's something that maybe that there actually could be something there. I would say the appeal might actually have some legs on those grounds. However, this this isn't any any kind of new information. I mean, this isn't this isn't like it was in in, in in autopsy or some type of investigation that the prosecutors did and then just didn't share it. This is some doctor, and he may be a great doctor who's a, a legitimate doctor um and you know he just basically read through through the 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 case file and after the trial back in in february he contacted derek chauvin and derek chauvin's appeal team and said and basically gave out this information it's the doctor basically said that you know i wouldn't be able to live with myself if i didn't share this information so so a lot of times stuff like this comes up and the best example i can give is a case where someone was convicted of murder or some other crime you know in the 70s or 80s or 90s when there wasn't DNA evidence. And now here, 20, 30 years later, there is some new evidence that wasn't available at the time, like DNA evidence, fingerprints, something forensic that wasn't available. Well, yeah, that is something that, you know, if you petition the court, maybe you can get a case dismissed or, or, or a new trial. But something like this, I, I don't think this has any legs. And, and here's the reason. It's because there are always going to be doctors who have a different theory of why George Floyd died. And some of those might be uh, theories that are uh, the uh, perfectly reasonable theories. But just because someone has a theory doesn't mean that that is the reason that someone died or that is a, a reason for there to be a new trial. So I don't think that there is really anything that's going to happen when it comes to this. Now, when it comes to the, the, the state charges, he has an appeal for those as well. I think there actually is a chance for that. And I can talk about that here in a second. But, you know, basically what came out in the, in the news the last couple of days, this this new evidence, essentially it's just a new theory from a different doctor. Don't think there's any chance of that one working. So basically, I guess what you're saying, and if I may nutshell you, uh, is that you're always going to have a, du a duel of the experts. You're going to have competing, I believe it's Daubert hearings to, to say the validity of certain testimony and whether or not it should have impact in a case, whether or not a jury should hear it. So we have a new expert saying, I have a new theory on a cause of death for this guy. 
but we don't have a smoking gun. We don't have an MRI or some kind of head scan that's, that shows some sort of mass in his head, some kind of document that was misplaced uh, before we went into trial that could change the whole thing. We don't have a smoking gun in terms of his medical condition, in other words. Exactly. I mean, we, we already have an official cause of death from the Hennepin County coroner. And just because some expert somewhere, again, they might be a reasonable person, but just because some expert somewhere, some doctor somewhere has a new theory of what happened, that is not grounds for a new trial. Daniel, are you like me where you're you're somewhat cynical about this, where obviously this was the probably the most important or at least the most infamous or wide, wide reaching criminal case of 2020? Is it possible that you have because there's charlatans in every profession, you have a doctor who wants to add his name to the list of experts on this or to somehow selfishly advance his career? Or are you cynical like me where you think it could be something like that? Or do you think he's legitimately speaking from the heart saying, you know, I couldn't just I, I couldn't I couldn't go to my grave without waiting three years until after it mattered to come out with this information? So one that that that's a really good question. One thing I didn't mention is that the doctor did say that he actually did try to contact Eric Nelson, who is Derek Chauvin's defense attorney, and also tried to contact the the prosecutor with this information back back when this trial went to back when this case went to trial, and that no no one responded to him. Um, I mean, you, you can imagine the defense attorney Eric Nelson for Derek Chauvin. That not only was he trying to be a defense attorney for like probably you know the case of the century, pretty much. But so the amount of information that he would be getting from everywhere, the idea that he's going to respond to every email from every doctor, that isn't reasonable. Um, so this doctor, like he is saying that he did try to make contact with both sides years ago, um, but it just it just didn't didn't get through. Um, as far as I know, the little information I know, um, I, he's probably a legitimate doctor. Um, and I, I don't think he's doing this for any kind of anything to, to further his career. But I just don't think that on a legal level that there's really any any basis for that. Okay. And so I know that people with long sentences uh, typically can be engaged in uh, appeals pretty much the entire time uh, since he was, you know, uh, I know he had a plea deal in the state. Um, do you feel like it's likely that we're going to continue to see some kind of appeals coming from Derek Chauvin or is it always going to be based off of some sort of new testimony or new fact come to light or, you know, kind of let our audience know what's typical for someone. Although I, th I think his sentence is atypical for a police officer who was charged and convicted of, of what he was. Can we continue to expect appeals coming from him? And if so, do you have any optimism that they could change his fate? Absolutely. So that's the appeal for the federal case where he he pled guilty to basically saying he wouldn't have pled guilty had had he known this. Right. I don't think that one has a chance. The one that does have a chance is is the case in the case that went to state court where it went to jury trial where he was convicted. So I think that one actually does have a it does have a chance to be overturned. Um, so the problem is that he he has appealed this to the Supreme Court. Now, the Supreme Court gets about the way you have to look at it. They get about seven thousand cases a year of essentially people who are saying, hey, we want you to look at our case, and they choose about 100. So it's possible, that it's likely that the Supreme Court won't even look at this case, but let's say they do. What the appeal is on this is basically under the Sixth Amendment that everyone has a right to, to a fair trial. And a couple things, a couple really interesting issues that you know a lot of us saw right from the beginning in this case is that the venue wasn't changed. So so essentially, the venue should be changed if the jurors in the jury pool, if they're if they are, are unduly uh, 
influence or if there's some other reason why they wouldn't be able to be fair and impartial. Um, so the fact that it wasn't changed from Hennepin County to somewhere else, that, that, I think that's, that that's a real reason to do it. Um, you know, the, uh, the, so you have to look at it this way. The, all of the jurors lived in Hennepin County. Every single one of them said that they were afraid of riots. Well, since the National Guard was deployed, knowing, hey, if we find this guy not guilty, there could be a riot in my neighborhood. It could be where my kid's school is. It could be where I work. This could really affect my life personally. So that idea right there is 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 a reason why the venue should have been changed. Also, the jurors weren't uh, se se sequestered, which typically happens. So when it comes, if the Supreme Court hears that, I think that could be that could be a reason um, that maybe he would get a new trial um, on the state charges if that if, if we walk down this a little bit further so let's say he's he gets a new trial let's say he's successful there well then he can make the argument hey had i not been convicted in state court i never would have pled guilty to the federal charges so maybe there's an argument with something happens federally that's a long road but um i think that one does have a chance if the supreme court actually hears it I get what you're saying, that you're hoping that he can pull on one thread and maybe unravel the rest of that tapestry. I think it is ludicrous that essentially there was a section of Minneapolis that was named after the victim that was walled off from law enforcement. And to be frank, certain kinds of folk and that it, even in that jurisdiction, a trial for uh, his trial would be held in that jurisdiction. I find that uh, frankly insane. You'd think that those two things would have been obvious to be granted. Um, it kind of reminds me, uh, just winding down, uh, there, there's an, a book and a movie called uh, To Kill a Mockingbird, in which uh, someone is going up uh, uh, for, for a rape trial, and the, someone in the town decides to defend this uh, man. And uh, at one point, the townspeople gather outside his house to try to uh, attempt to persuade him not to defend uh, the person accused in that book. And it's a perfect demonstration of moral courage and mob mentality. And I think it's very possible that mob mentality won out in this case. Uh, thank you for your comments on uh, that. It's a case that everyone here is uh, interested and passionate about because it essentially launched our podcast. I want to welcome to the show our host, uh, Lieutenant Commander Andrew Baxter, uh, formerly of the Hillsborough County Sheriff's Office. Drew, how are you doing tonight, sir? Doing great. Just, uh, just keep going. Uh, well, we're transitioning from the news, Drew. If you uh, would like, uh, we can go ahead and uh, get into this case. Uh, for those listeners, uh, this is a, a difficult case. It hits home for, for us, for both of us, because I, I, I care about Drew, but these are Drew's people. Uh, we have Daniel here who uh, also spoke on this case earlier this week. And uh, we're, we're going to look at some video. I, I don't really want to play it more than once. It's available anywhere that you want to see it. But I think it's important for our YouTube audience to know what we're talking about. Uh, basically, and correct me at any point, Daniel or Drew, if I get the facts of the case wrong, because I want to present it correctly. We had uh, two sheriff's deputies uh, respond to the town of Brandon in Hillsborough County uh, Sheriff's Office, Hillsborough County, Florida. They're sheriff's deputies. Uh, they were responding to a call from a woman who had concerns about her son. They arrived on scene. Uh, they made contact with him very briefly. He seemed to not want to interact with the police. They had no, no uh, reasonable suspicion to suspect him of a crime, no PC to hold him, to stop him to do anything. He left the scene in a vehicle. Uh, a deputy that was there went up to the house to talk to the mother about what some of her options were. And uh, the suspect then returned to the scene in a vehicle. And while two deputies were still standing outside the marked vehicle, he hit the gas and intentionally collided with these deputies, causing life-altering, career-altering injuries, 
uh, injuring uh, not only those deputies, but their families and the sheriff's office and the people who appreciate law and order in Hillsborough County. Do I essentially have it correct, Drew and Daniel? Yeah. Yes. Oh, you seem okay. to. I mean, uh, they, they, it was the second time they had responded there in probably a week or so. I mean, we talked about it on probably on the other show, but the, uh, the mental health unit that we have uh, responded out there probably a week prior and, and guided the mother on how to obtain a court order to get her son uh, evaluated to have the judge uh, make that determination and, you know, uh, an involuntary commitment through the judge, not through us. Uh, we can do that. But um, in this instance, the, you know, this is an age old uh, problem. You can be schizophrenic in America. Like there is no, not against the law. <laughs> it's not against the law. And if they're not taking their medications, then we just, you know, you just have to keep, you know, just chipping away. It's, it's pretty difficult when you have a mid twenties child. I know different people have different opinions that this is somehow the parents fault, but uh, you just keep chipping away and, and doing the best that you can. But this is, this is happening everywhere. And uh, this guy just was uh, not taking his medications. And when he doesn't take his medications, obviously he's not right. And uh, so uh, he, they, they, they tried to, you know, the, they tried to guide the mother uh, a road. She'd probably been down a few times. And a couple days later, he was uh, still in one of his phases and became a little bit more aggressive. So they called uh, the sheriff's office to come back out there, the Hillsborough County Sheriff's Office. And uh, when the deputies responded, he was sitting in his car. Uh, he wouldn't roll down the window. He wouldn't look at him. He wouldn't talk to him. And there's no crime committed. So yeah. he backed out and then you could take it from here. Yeah. Uh, I just have one quick question for you, Drew. Uh, I, 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 first, I'll follow up to say about it being the parent's responsibility. I guess, in my opinion, as a dispatcher for whatever that's worth, someone's 18. You know, it's the same thing as when someone uh, calls in and their 19 year old child is is missing. You know, they want us to treat that like it's a juvenile case and to exercise all kinds of authority as though that person is still their legal guardian. And once someone's 18, um, I don't I don't think the family is quite as responsible anymore. And I also think if the family's calling, it's because that person is out of control. Right. And and, and that's police are always coming in to exert control on an out of control situation, whether it's someone's failing to govern themselves in terms of their behavior or their, or their criminal behavior. So it seems to me like police are, are called into that and I wouldn't necessarily uh, place blame on the parents. Uh, conversely, you know, I know that parents can make situations worse. I have firsthand experience with that. Um, but this, this guy, and, and we don't have to speak his name, the news will do that for us, but did he have history of criminal behavior too? I mean, he had been arrested on one prior occasion. Did he, do you know if he had any prior convictions at all? Go ahead, Daniel. Yeah, so he had been arrested for, I believe, uh, 17 misdemeanors and three different felonies. There was actually a case in 2017 where he was the offender of a hit and run. While he was apprehended by, uh, by, by police officers, he punched a police officer, stated that he hated law enforcement, and threatened to kill a police officer. What's interesting to me from, from a dispatcher point of view is that if we had a, a suspect who was like that, uh, they usually will meet a certain criteria for us as dispatchers where... 
and this is not something that requires a court order or uh, any kind of we don't we need probable cause or anything if we know a suspect is if he says i hate law enforcement if he even if he says i'm a sovereign citizen or if he says if he has acted out if he's if he's assaulted uh, paramedics firefighters or police officers we will usually you know since we maintain an intelligence apparatus where we're, we're putting their name and their information into our computer we will usually attach essentially a note saying this person's dangerous to law enforcement you need to respond with backup um and so that person is known prior to dispatch. Um, I don't have all the facts in this case. Is it possible that we didn't, that information wasn't there or that it wasn't effectual? Or what do you think, Drew? Well, uh, there's a location history available no matter what. So, uh, so a responding deputy or supervisor, all, all they essentially have to do is click on the address and they can see how many times we responded out there and, and when, and when the most recent one is, and they would have seen that, um, that incident. And sometimes the dispatchers even do that for you. Um, there are uh, flag records also, though, like you that you speak of that, you know, this guy was charged with battery on a law enforcement officer. So uh, there might be a caution indicator if his name is even mentioned. Like, uh, I, I don't know that it was or it wasn't. Um, it, the mother was calling uh, saying that her son so and so was acting out. So uh, it may not necessarily catch it the way uh, the, the the flag record, you know, would marry up the fact that he's been violent in the past it may have though uh, it may yeah. it may it, it may very well have and uh the thing is there there were more than three deputies there i think there were four total uh you know the three deputies and a supervisor so um it, it's quite possible that they understood the gravity and uh you know they're pretty good about backing each other up from what i understand it was like 7 45 or 8 o'clock in the morning so you know things are just starting to get going and um uh, luckily, you know, you've got the day shift on in full swing at that point. You don't really have any leftover midnight shift people and the day shift guys are probably just going to go back each other up like that. So uh, circling back on a couple of points we've made, and then I'll play the video and uh, take reactions if we have some. Uh, we had a case out of, I believe, Seattle where uh, we had a, a lawsuit come about because a, uh, a call for an ambulance went out and a 911 dispatcher had a location note that flagged that police officers had to arrive before uh, fire and EMS personnel could respond. Uh, the police were all tied up because police are defunded, police are overworked, police are overrun. And uh, a father died in that case and a lawsuit came out of it. Um, and that, you know, that's an example of where a location note uh, might not work. Also, just uh, referencing one of Jim's comments before, dispatchers don't always ask when she says, my son's acting out, you know, it could be that the dispatcher didn't ask their name. I guess I'm not here to second guess or question the dispatcher in this case. I'm just saying that's something that could happen. That's where if there was a crack, you know, that's where one of those things could be. And even today, while I was at work, it occurred to me, uh, Jim is uh, echoing in my mind that I need to be asking more questions about who's involved. So, Jim, you're, you're still mentoring me. Uh, we'll go ahead and uh, we'll go to the video from the crash. Like I said, this is pretty extreme. We're only going to play it one time. If you uh, are interested in uh, if you're shocked by it and horrified by it as we are, you know, you can you can look back that look back at that on your own to get more details, but I'm going to go ahead and play it at this time. There's a couple different views here. Uh, we start from ring cameras in the area, and then eventually we go to body cam, and we'll see uh, what happened to uh, the sheriff's deputies who are responding.
Okay, that was uh, from police activity. Uh, we've used them before on the show. We uh, use the material because uh, we're instructional and we're trying to use uh, their material to to react to the video and to talk about it. Daniel, I'll take your reactions on that. Uh, the first time you saw that, what did you think? Uh, I'll tell you that when I saw it, I about left out of my chair and I, I said, holy shit, I couldn't believe how hard he drove into their vehicle to to knock the vehicle back. And to think about human two human beings uh, in between those vehicles was uh shocking and heart-wrenching you know what did you think when you saw it yeah i think the video pretty much speaks for itself and anyone who watches that video is just going to be shocked by watching it uh just amazed that the police officers are, are alive after that and um i'm really curious to see what what drew has to say about this because i know that this this hits home for him uh the only other thing that i i, I want to say about it watching watching that video is after so the, the, these deputies were were assaulted and they were almost killed and their first reaction isn't to use deadly force. You even see one of the deputies verbalize less lethal. That just shows just an, an unbelievable amount of professionalism and restraint that for most humans would be unthinkable. Thank you for saying that. Um, <clears throat> I, I, there's a lot of questions. I mean, cops all over the United States are like, why didn't they just kill that guy? Um, and, and again, it, it gets back to... Um, this is this is the argument I always use with Uvalde. It's the same in a sense. If if that guy walks out after killing, you know, however many kids he killed in Uvalde with his hands up and no gun in his hand, you, you don't get to execute him. You would love to. Um, and, you know, I think there are people that would take the prison sentence over that. Um, but just because somebody did something egregious doesn't mean that you get to kill them in return. It's it's not it doesn't work that way. And um, it's the, 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 uh, imminent threat of death or, uh, great bodily harm, uh, to yourself or to somebody else. And he walked away from that vehicle and therefore the threat is gone. He's, he, all he's doing is walking towards, you know, two individuals, obviously is a little bit deranged. Um, so they have to, you know, take the appropriate use of force measures, but, um, you know, th this is the kind of uh, ho horrible example, but horrid or horror, horrorful example. I don't know what even word to use, but um, when everybody says that, you know, we're, we're just out there executing people, we're out, you know, we will take, we can't wait to get our first taste of blood and come on, man. Uh, this guy just literally, it, it's, it's a miracle that those guys made it. Um, and you're right. They, it, this wasn't even a de-escalation. This was just a, 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 a like out of um, just a matter of knowing what to do, a matter of instinct. They said, go to less lethal. They tased him. He went to the ground and they handcuffed him. And the situation's over, but the new emergency begins in, in getting help for Corporal Brito and Deputy Santos. I think that's an excellent point. Daniel, circling back to something you said earlier, uh, this is something that has come up before, but you said that they were almost killed in the line of duty. Something we need to kind of change in terms of the way we talk about attacks on police officers is that they were almost murdered in the line of yeah. duty. So, you know, to say, and, and I'm not criticizing, but to say that a police officer is almost killed is it, it takes all the intention out of it. We have people out there who are intentionally uh, trying to murder police officers, human beings, private citizens, people who have a job, people who have families. And uh, I think it dehumanizes them a little bit when we casually say kill, which I know was not your intent at all, of course. But we need we need to to speak differently about people like this to say that they, you know, and he has been charged with attempted murder case in point. Um, 
uh, times three. He's facing three counts of that. Uh, they, he attempted to, to murder those officers. And, and Drew, I think you're right. Uh, if police officers were simply just, uh, you know, as, as Dirty Harry says, you know, go ahead, make my day, give me an excuse, sign your own death warrant. This was one of those cases where uh, legally justifiable or not, I think anyone would have understood them uh, resorting to lethal means uh, right away. But as Daniel said, their their training is so good down there in Hillsborough County that they, they reacted appropriately. They they analyzed the situation as it was evolving in real time in front of them and changed their tactics for the situation that was going on. Uh, if you saw in the video there when you have one of the deputy who, who's down, uh, you know, it's not that they're ignoring him, but they're continuing to be professional and respond to the threat. And they realize that uh, less lethal is what's important at that point. Uh, Daniel, another point before I move on. Yeah, I mean, this is true. I mean, police officers are, are typically so, so professional that it, it's often, and you see this in a lot of cases, and, and it's demonstrated perfectly here, that when it comes to the use of force that is used by police officers, it is, has far more to do with not so much the crime that was committed, but the level of active resistance from the individual. Because we hear about this in a lot of cases, they'll say things like, well, how come Kyle Rittenhouse wasn't killed by police officers? Or or, or they'll say, you know, there, there, there was this, this, this black female who, you know, all she did is shop lift and then she was killed by a police officer and, and obviously when people say that it's just an extremely dishonest thing to say because it has very little to do with the crime that was committed and it is so much about what is the active threat that is facing the police officers at this time and and again you are 100 percent correct this individual he did intentionally try to murder the, those those police officers and when the police officers had their chance they used reasonable and appropriate force to take him in, in, in into custody and the level of professionalism um is is something that um is is uh, al almost surprising how professional they were to your point, uh, John, it's killed in the line of duty. You know, they would have been considered killed in the line of duty, but if the shoe were on the other foot in this this example, all the naysayers, the critics on uh, on Daniel's page and on our page would be calling that state-sponsored murder. Right. You know, so it's it it's a double stand. It's a complete double standard. Like it's it's open season on the cops, and that's fine. If they make it, they make it. If they don't, they don't, and they're killed in the line of duty like a soft you know uh they shouldn't have put themselves in that position or whatever right. but if the shoe's well, on the other foot obviously we're just stone cold killers and we're murderers and, and and by the way i don't know if i mentioned it on this show it was it might have been on the other show but uh this as the crow flies was it was a mile a mile and change from where brian levine uh was uh was murdered the exact same way uh except he was in his car he was in his car and a mentally ill subject had left uh, an apartment. And uh, in fact, I don't think he was wearing any clothes. He jumped in a car and uh, they tried to warn him on the radio. Hey, he's driving right at you. And, and uh, he drove right into Brian, uh, you know, two days before his retirement after 30 some odd years in law enforcement. Uh, you know, it's just, it's, it's weird that that uh, just that circle, you know, that radius had, to similar, you know, instance like that. It's uh, both cases, obviously terrible. Um, the other th thing that was interesting is that you, you almost imply that it's a double standard, but I guess I would wager still that it's an impossible triple standard. Uh, Daniel, when you were talking about uh, the Texas state fair shooter and a lot of the pushback you were getting on that is that, you know, that you're, if you're a white person, the police can take you into custody uh, with no problem. 
so it's not just a different standard for police officers and the public. It's a standard for police officers and the public and the public, you know, and then again, depending on on race. Uh, race was not an issue in this case, but I just, just wanted to say that the, the cards are de definitely stacked against police officers, regardless of what you hear in the news. Daniel and I were talking before the show about how vexing it is to police officers and how frequently we hear straight lies about the way that police officers think and behave in their profession and that they go unchecked. Um, but to hear some truth about the incident, I'm going to go ahead and play a couple of videos. This is just from some deputies who were involved. The first one was... Uh, Deputy Santos. This is his press press conference. It goes on for a few minutes, and I'm just going to play it because I would like to just hear what this, uh, the deputy has to say in his own words. He describes the incident which you saw and which we've been talking about, but I still think it's powerful to hear him talk about it. Uh, we don't often get the opportunity to speak directly or hear the words directly of a police officer. The sheriff there in Hillsborough County has uh, allowed them to do that at this press conference. I don't know how common that is, but I'll go ahead and just uh, play his video. Much right now. Um, we were literally living a normal day. You're good. It's, it was me, Corporal Brito, uh, Deputy Torres and Deputy Valentine, which are all my near and dear friends. We were hanging out at Starbucks off of Winthrop, having a normal day, normal conversations, sending out emails, doing what we got to do. This call came out as just like a normal call. Hey, we're going to it. I Me, mean, I looked at Valentine. I was like, all right, bro, you ready? We get in the cars, we go, all of us hop on the call just because of the nature of the situation and how dangerous this person is that we're dealing with. Um, we, we head that way, corporal's up front. We park our vehicles uh, pretty much simultaneously back to back. Uh, corporal realigns his vehicle just because we found out that the person was inside a car, hoping that we find out more information and see what we have to do. Maybe you have to stop the guy, who knows, right? So corporal aligns the car in a slanted way Vehicles up front like this. We approach it. I approach from the passenger side. I look inside the vehicle for weapons. Obviously, our safety's uh, paramount. We see I see no firearms. I see no weapons, no knives, or nothing, right? So, randomly, Corporal's like, hey, we need to get some more information to make sure we don't have to stop this guy, right? At that point, we can do what we have to do. Um, we didn't have to. We didn't get more information. The guy puts the car in reverse while it's off. It, like, rolls back. He tries to go away. Corporal's like, hey, hop in here on my car and move my Tahoe so it doesn't get hit. I move the Tahoe away. Guy randomly turns his car on as I'm doing this and flees, right? He's gone. We have no reason to stay there. We tell Valentine, as a good deputy he is, goes to talk to the complainant, let him know, hey, here's what we can do for you. Here's what you should do. And me and Corporal are leaving the scene, essentially. I go, I shut my body cam off. My supervisor shuts his body cam off. I'm mimicking what he does. I go to talk to him. We're just talking right before briefing each other like we usually do on normal calls. Deputy Torres goes to a different call. Literally keys up and says, yeah, I'll go help out whoever needs help. Somebody needs help. Nothing, nothing dangerous to somebody need help. And at that moment, we heard tire squealing coming up from the east side of that road. <clears throat> and uh, we tell Torres, like, hey, be careful. That might be him. He comes back, we see the car, immediately, I try to push Corporal out of the way from what, I, what I've been told, I didn't even know I did this, I did this out of mind, just who I am. I push him out of the way, I push myself out of the way, and when I fell on the ground, I made sure I wasn't bleeding, I made sure I didn't need a tourniquet. When I noticed I wasn't, back in the fight, pulled my firearm out, pointed it towards this guy, this monster person, man. I see him, I observe him, I don't see any firearms, 
I see him look at eyeball one of my partners, which is Vincent Valentine, one of my best friends. Makes eye contact with him. I hear him giving verbal commands. As soon as I notice that, that's it. It's my saving grace, right? I holstered. I flipped over to make sure I keep eyes on my partners. And then I called for EMS. That's all I got for that, man. In that time when he left, the time he came back, was that just moments, minutes? It felt like seconds. It felt like seconds. Yes, sir. Just the wherewithal everything we do in this career I believe is instinctive it's what we do we we're, we're chosen to be a cop we're chosen to be police officers we're chosen to give our lives away at a moment's notice and that's what I was going to do that day I did everything I could sir there's no other job you can do that's like this to be a part of this agency specifically you got to be a special person um, we're all good people. We all make mistakes, but we got to do what we have to do, correct? Sir. So, uh, anything else you want to add? Nope. Sure, you can't help but be proud of this. Beyond proud. Look at look at these warriors. This guy wanted to kill a deputy. We thought we were planning a funeral. Instead, we have a bunch of heroes, a bunch of warriors here. Make sure they go home. Yes, sir. Thank you. Thank you for your service. I appreciate you. Thanks so much. It means a lot. Uh, initial reactions from uh, Deputy Santos there. Uh, pretty emotional, but also uh, surprisingly straightforward. I think his professionalism is still in, in high gear. Uh, he told the story from his perspective, but also as a report, uh, gentlemen, as police officers, what are your takes? Good. You know, I, you know, I, I think it's great that uh, it shows leadership from the sheriff that the deputy was even allowed to, to speak about this. So I'm, I'm glad that he was able to. It's good to hear in, in his own words, um, you know, what his perception of everything that happened was. And um, I mean, this is just the, the the one of the worst nightmares that you could you could think of because there are a lot of situations that police officers go in where you know it could be dangerous. You know, you're you're on a traffic stop, you're going to a domestic. I mean, as, as he just said, you know, essentially, uh, I, and I didn't know this before that this call was over like the call was over they were about to leave and then it happened you know it, the reason one of the reasons why this is just so shocking and, and tragic is because when something like this happens there's no way for the officers to prepare for for, for for what happens you can't prepare you can't you can't fight back and um you know at least if it's on a traffic stop or something you know that you're walking into a situation that could be dangerous i mean this call was over um <clears throat> Chad Cronister is a friend of mine. We, uh, we, we, uh, we spent most of our adult lives growing up at that agency together. When I was just a young dispatcher, lowly dispatcher, uh, I used to ride with the deputies occasionally uh, because I knew where I wanted to be and what I wanted to do. And I always picked the right guys to ride with. And Chad Cronister was one of the guys I used to ride with, like on the midnight shift. And yeah, I mean, we're talking about 30 years ago, probably. Um, and he takes a lot of heat sometimes because, um, being a sheriff is a political position and to, in order to maintain your position as a politician, you have to secure votes and in order to secure votes, you have to get in front of people and talk a lot. 
and you have to do uh, innovative things, which he is known to do. Um, I, I can tell you this from my heart. I, I mean, you know, he gets a bad rap sometimes, but but he is uh, he, he is the same Chad Cronister that you just saw there. Like that's the same guy I know. Uh, I worked with him. We, we were detectives together, as a matter of fact, in the intelligence unit for a while. And um, that's the same guy. He he's uh, you know, if I can, uh, I don't want to gush about him because this isn't a show about Chad Cronister, but. Uh, I will take this time to tell you that um, he, he he has always stuck up for the nerds or he's always taken up for the quiet ones uh, or in a case like this, he's always given the voice to the people that normally wouldn't have the voice. And it would be just as easy for him to stand up there and talk about how great his deputies did and the fact that they didn't kill anybody and blah, blah, blah but he did. He, he, he said, here you go, buddy. If you want to talk, you talk. This is your, this is your moment. This isn't mine. Um, and I'm sure if, if Carlos were down there, Carlos Brito were down, was down there, he would he'd do the exact same thing for him. Uh, there, there are plenty of pictures and, and video of, of Sheriff Conister in that hospital room, but the fact of the matter is he's there. And, um, I, I don't know if it's widely known or, or, you know, hopefully I'm not putting too much business on the streets, but uh, Corporal Brito is married to a dispatcher that worked in the communication center when, uh, when I was up there, great employee, great person. I don't want to, you know, talk about her name or anything, but um, this is, uh, this is the place I used to work. You know, I, I, I do think that, uh, you know, I have some deep anger. Uh, I, I have some deep anger for that place because, you know, uh, I left for a couple of, of reasons that made me angry, uh, because I didn't want to leave because that's exactly who I worked with. Just guys like Brito and Santos and Vince Valentine. And I, you know, I didn't work with those guys specifically, but that's the character I worked with. Like that's the, even at the lowest point of morale, that's, that's how they stuck together. And that's how professional they were and nobody. And I mean, nobody could ever um, pick apart our training. Uh, you know, the way that those deputies are trained uh, going back, you know, 10, 15 years, uh, even when I was coming through, I mean, we've always had the highest quality training and it, it paid off here. Like you can't even say, even though that was the end of the call, you can't even say that this was a matter of complacency. This just literally just materialized out of nowhere. And, um, what's, what's the first thing he thought? Like, okay, I hear my partner, I'm going to put my gun away. I started thinking about, uh, getting my eyes on everybody else. I started thinking about where my tourniquet was. Tourniquets weren't even, you know, tourniquets were just being put on the belts when I was leaving. Uh, and they've saved so many people like, you know, over the past couple of years to include, Carlos, there's no question about it. If the, if they didn't have a tourniquet in their hand, um, he'd be dead. Um, there was a point that I don't know if we have it, but there was some audio that, uh, Carlos got on the radio and said some, some things he thought he was going to die. So, um, hats off I, to those guys. I don't have the, the audio. I would like to play it for its instructional value for what dispatchers in that situation here and have to endure because uh, for us police officers are our colleagues and 
I've said this before, uh, and I don't, this is not a, a put down, but police officers become police officers for their own reasons. And it has a lot to do with the community and the profession and their view of themselves and their view of what's right and wrong and their view of their talents. Uh, dispatchers become dispatchers to support police officers. You know, you guys are the reasons why we get into it. Just joking here, but we tolerate firefighters so that we get to help you guys. Uh, you know, uh, it's just for a little levity. Uh, but, uh, you know, so when we hear that our, our officers are in danger, it's always very difficult for us because the best thing that we can do is sit there and continue to do our jobs because we f- do a vital function in, in helping to solve that problem. But it, it's sometimes it's our instinct, too. When I when I first became a dispatcher after being a correctional officer and I was used toward used to running towards the, the, the call of danger. I remember uh, having to restrain myself and having to sit in my chair and thinking that even though I could be the first person there, if I jumped in my personal vehicle, that it, no one could replace me and I have to stay here. It's frustrating. Daniel, I wanted to get uh, reactions uh, to uh, Deputy Santos, if you have any before moving on. No, I think uh, Drew said it said it perfectly. Um, At the risk of being a little gratuitous, uh, I just I want to talk about the professionalism and the training of uh, Hillsborough County. I'm going to go ahead and play a further video, uh, which features Deputy Valentine and uh, Deputy Jose Torres. I believe Uh, they respond to some questions. It's a little bit different for them because they didn't endure the attack uh, personally in that to say that the vehicle didn't hit them. Uh, but it, it collided with their, their brother officers, and they were the first ones on the scene. And I believe they took the suspect into custody. They're the ones that we're talking about. They're, they're the professional deputies who knew uh, when to switch over to to a, a lesser, uh, less than lethal force. Go ahead, Drew. Before you hit play, uh, I just want to br- bring out a couple points. First of all, um, you saw it caught up with him, so y- you can tell in the in the. Uh, process of him telling a very descriptive story about being at the Winthrop Starbucks and Corporal being first, you know, leading leading the pack to the to the call. Um, he, uh, you can tell the moment uh, where the emotions start to flood because that's the trigger in his mind. This is the trauma. This is exactly what I'm talking about. This is the the trauma that I always talk about. This is what you know. This is what police officers experience, and. Um, he, he can't even get through the story now, uh, for, knowing he survived. And um, it's a long road ahead, not just physically for him, but mentally also. Um, and then what we often, and, and the whole point of us having this show, John, what we often forget about is something you just mentioned. Um, I, I'll bring it up again. I'll, pro- I'll bring it up every show if I want. Uh, but the uh, mitigating stress and trauma in the civilian sector, uh, the, uh, the the research paper that I wrote, uh, I could tell you that the top um, things, uh, the top tra- uh, traumatic incidents for dispatchers uh, include, you know, the death of some type of child or the death of some type of baby, but it's also the death of a coworker. So uh, I, I think we often, I, and I know that where I used to work is getting very, very good about including them. Uh, but I don't know how it is where everybody else works, but that there there was somebody on the other end of the radio that had to hear all that screaming, or there was somebody on the other end of the phone that had to hear the 911 call from the neighbor that called if, if that's what happened. Um, and that happened on their watch, right? So when you're sitting there on the radio and, and something like this happens, I mean, you, you almost kind of, you feel a sense of responsibility almost. And those are sounds that 
that dispatcher is never going to be able to get out. And, and, you know, uh, I, I've talked about it a million times. They just, there, there's no closure when it comes to stuff like this, because the cops on the street tend to not really talk about it anymore with the dispatcher or, or just even a simple question like, Hey, you did a great job. You doing okay. You know, you want to come to the debrief with us or whatever. And it's getting better in the profession. I know it is. I hope it is. Um, but I, you know, I do hear it. I know there's evidence of that, but, uh, just think there's a dispatcher on the other end of that. And then it goes, you know, double and triple because they were coworkers of Carlos's wife. And, you know, uh, it, it just, it compounds, so to speak. Uh, sounds like a family problem uh, for everyone when that happens. It's not just isolated or it's not just uh, close friends. It's It affects everyone throughout the agency and uh, partner agencies. Uh, response to that, Daniel, I uh, just wanted to give you an opportunity. I know that dispatching is outside of your wheelhouse, but I, I feel like it's fair to give you that space if you have anything to add. I think it's really good for those of us who are police officers who don't have any firsthand experience when it comes to uh, dispatch to really hear this side of it. Um, until I started watching your show and lis- listening to to, to Drew um, and, and you guys talk about it, I, I had no idea. It just never it just never occurred to me. I mean, I knew that dispatchers were part of it and, and, but it, it never, it never occurred to me that, you know, hearing something on the line that you would all, you could also have trauma from that. And the, the thing that Drew said a bunch of times that, that really struck with me is that, is that there is no closure. And that is at least a little bit satisfying as a police officer. And just listening to you guys talk about it almost every week, I, I think, what would that be like to hear something traumatic, especially if it's a family member, if, if it's a, if it's a coworker, not knowing what happens at the end of it, um, just, just that, I think would be really, really difficult. Um, and I'm glad that there's a space to talk about that because I can tell you just, just as being as, as, as a cop on, 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 on patrol, that isn't something that would necessarily, um, that we would necessarily think, think about from that side. I appreciate those comments. Um, I appreciate, I, I put you on the spot and I appreciate what you had to say. Uh, I'll go ahead and uh, play, play the comments from uh, Valentine's uh, press conference. So he was the first one to respond after the crash. Um, there was no time to think one of those split second, uh, decisions where seconds felt like minutes, minutes felt like hours. There's no time to think, uh, we received some of the highest standard of training in the country and I kicked in second nature. It kicked in and there was no time for emotion. So we also had to put that to the side and offer that level of professionalism to the bad guy who was no longer armed and he had nothing in his hands. He was unarmed. So that's why we switched to less lethal means and was able to, uh, Effectively, to apply our AD. And how challenging is that, that to, to, to make that switch, or is it almost instinctual? It's instinctual. Like I said, uh, we have great training, and that, that comes into play without even thinking about it. You're, you're agreed, uh, 100%. Closer, we, we just, I remember pointing my weapon at him. I noticed he didn't have anything in his hands. He was walking towards the Deputy Valentine over there, and he wasn't answering to command, so that's why I switched over to non lethal. And at the same time, it was the hardest thing ever because hearing them on the side and, and just trying to keep composure and trying to make, you know, take care of the situation as fast as possible because they needed help. Uh, it was very emotional, but it was bittersweet. I'm very sad this happened to him, but I'm very happy he's making such a speedy recovery. The doctors, is, they've said it time and time over again. They're amazed at how fast he's recovering, and I'm very happy to hear that. 
Yes, sir. So we, my Manny Santos and Corporal Bredo and I, we've worked together day in and day out for the last two years. So it, there were fam, there, there are family members. So it was, it was really hard. Um, uh, we could see there he's he's echoing you, Drew. Go ahead. No, it, it, well, what I love about his response is like it's it's the media's perception, right? And, and I get it. I, I understand why they think this, but it, it's because they've told this story over and over again, and they think that this is how we are. But the the media guy, the 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 reporter's question was like, how did you? You, you knew what just happened and you had a gun in your hand and blah, blah, blah. That's the projection. Like that's the projection of the media. The media assumes that we're just killers. He didn't say, well, you know, it was really hard to switch gears and blah, blah, blah. And, or he, it was to him, it was a no brainer. It was instinctive. Like he, the, those, that was the word he used. It was instinctive that, you know, the, I mean, I went to less lethal. He didn't have a gun in his hand. Yeah. Like, I, th- I did my I job. The, the news wants it to be a, some sort of a weighty moral decision as though he had seen everything, yeah. considered it, looked down his gun sights at this man and had weighed <laughs> right. the, the value of whether or not he should avenge his fallen brothers. When, right. when you're in a Flip situation like that, then... <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's, it's happening so fast when the truth is, is when you're really well trained, you, you, you're able to almost scan a situation and respond appropriately like he said it's instinctive you know i don't want to put words in his mouth i'll just restate what what he said before we go on uh, that press conference was uh, from at least a few days ago uh drew have you heard uh how, how things are progressing obviously yeah. santos was discharged on saturday uh, so that was not, yeah not that as well but go ahead i'm sorry that that was um uh, i'm trying to pull up my uh, messages i'm actually using my phone as my camera right now so the 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 um, the last word that I got, and you know, I don't want to put again, I, like full medical information out, but apparently, uh, they were able to put a uh, bone back in um, Carlos's uh, foot. Uh, there was a good chance that he was going to lose his leg, you know, from his knee down. Uh, there, there was, uh, you know, not to get graphic or gruesome, but there was a chunk of his femur that was left at the scene. Um. And uh, the doctor summons people to go get it. And the doctor like somehow implanted that in his body to preserve it. And uh, they were able to do surgery on that today. So um, it says, uh, you know, they're concerned uh, that the the skin around the ankle um, is going to survive because, you know, it's, it's, it's just the nature of the injury, but uh, so far it looks good. Uh, You know, he's closing up, he's moving to recovery uh, or he was already in recovery, but like, he's got, you know, super antibiotics being pumped through his body and, and all kinds of stuff. Now we haven't even addressed the pain. Like, could you imagine the pain that day? And then the subsequent pain, like he's got to be in a constant state of pain. I would guess. I'm I'm sure I'm sure he's on a morphine drip, and I'm sure, like you said, the the antibiotics after surgery, you're not out of danger. You know, when you hear of people dying from complications, it's usually an infection or something somewhere that that can get them. Um, our interest in in him is because we care. It's not because we we, we want to be invasive or anything, but it's all because right. we're thinking about him and praying about him. Uh, shifting gears a, a little bit back towards the matter of law and, and media and, and pr- people's perception of law enforcement. There's a police officer in, in who I know is in Florida in the chats. 
and uh, he he got everyone incited by by mistake because he 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 made a sarcastic comment that people took sincerely, saying, "Well, that's what they signed up for." Uh, Daniel, can you explain why uh, serving uh, in as a police officer in a community is really not the same thing as enlisting in the army during World War II? Can you <laughs> can you differentiate those things? <laughs> yeah, if if the difference isn't isn't obvious, um, uh, a comment like that is a, is a sarcastic thing. But that is something that anti police activists say all the time. They say it on Twitter, on on Instagram. They put it on a lot a lot of these stories. So you know, one of the reasons why I think doing episodes like this is is important and really highlighting this this human side of 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 policing is because when something like this happens, I guarantee you there are tens of thousands of comments saying that well, this is what the officer signed signed up for. This is what this is what they, you know, this is the chance that they take. And that is absolutely a ridiculous thing because we're not going to war with the the, the community. We're there to serve the community. And yes, just like um, Deputy Santos said, if he had to give his life, he would. And all of us would. But that's not something that we expect to happen or that we want to happen. And especially if it's in a way that is senseless like this when someone tries to murder a, a uh, police officer. It's it's troubling to hear, and I haven't seen anything like this, but I, I have seen cases before too, where people are are not only not understanding, uh, but they're they're mean spirited about it. And uh, like I said, I haven't seen anything like this so far, but it is troubling. Uh, it brings us back to the constant conversation that we have, though. Uh, what is the role of of police officers uh, in a world where mental health crisis seems to be on the rise? We hinted at it earlier in the episode. Um, what what frustrations do you have as a police officer, Daniel? And then Drew, uh, as ha- like as you said, Drew, as you know, it's not it's not against the law to be having a psychotic break or a mental episode of some kind. Uh, I've had deputies come in and express extreme frustration to me in the, my own communications room that it's it's not against the law. Uh, how would you like to see things change? Uh, do you guys have do you have faith in uh, the way that say Seattle is doing it with a, a dual dispatch response? Uh, what, I, I don't, Drew, your takes also on, uh, on on how mental health crisis people should respond to these things. It's it, look, it's an aftercare issue. It's it's not necessarily the the initial response. I mean, the initial response is important, obviously, uh, but you know, most of these things are aftercare issues. Like, are, are the people following up with their own care, or and some people just you know, this is a very tricky thing. Like if if you've convinced yourself that you don't need help, but it's very clear that you do, uh, at, at what point does the, you know, look, the classic example is Britney Spears. You know, she was under that conservatorship, uh, conservatorship or whatever it was called, um, because they didn't think she was mentally stable. And and at what point does uh, an adult get to be an adult and make that call themselves? And if they want to be crazy, they can be crazy or you know, maybe she's just acting or just reacting to some of the childhood traumas or whatever. So the, the, the thing that, uh, there's no long-term care. It doesn't seem that, you know, like mandatory long-term care. And we've done away with, you know, what used to be called asylums probably because, you know, that became a money grab at some point too. So the, the system got watered down. So what, what we essentially have now is that, and I think this is the same just about everywhere, but the largest concentration of mentally ill people are sitting in a county jail awaiting some type of pretrial. Like, I think that that is the bastion or that's the pool where all the, the you know, the people with um, 
severe mental health problems like that go. And that's where they end up. And, you know, is incarceration the, the right choice? Or even if it's the putting them on the path of a mental health court so they're not punished for, for you know, their brain not working like everybody else's. But still, I mean, it, it falls back on law enforcement. It falls into the budget of the law enforcement agency that runs that jail to handle the mentally ill. Like it's not, it's, it seems like it's not a medical issue anymore. It's some type of court civil law enforcement issue. And it's not, it's a, it's a, it's, you know, a medical thing. Daniel, what do you think about how police officers uh, interface, how how they interact with the seemingly rising mental health crisis and how does it affect you as an agency? How does it affect a shift? Uh, What's the impact for you where you are? What I see is extremely frustrating, and I've dealt with this dozens of times. I was on patrol for about 15 years, is that you have someone who hasn't committed a crime, but they're but they are either a threat to themselves or they are a threat to someone else, um, or they, you know, just aren't safe to take care of themselves. So those are the ways that, at least in my state, that police officers can take away someone's freedom and do essentially a 48-hour mental health hold. So we do that, you know, we we have we have we meet, meet the criteria, we take the individual to get a mental health uh, evaluation evaluation and then they're back on the street sometimes before the end of my shift the next day and they're doing the exact same thing and as a police officer that's extremely frustrating and you know what i bet if we had a, a doctor or someone or a nurse or someone who worked in one of these one of these uh one of these units there um at the mental health facility they would say that it's frustrating on their end too the, they they would probably say you know we have this person they need to be on they have this that diagnosis they need therapy they need meds they need months of treatment this is a this is a situation that took years to get to where it is now i'm not going to fix this person in five or six hours you know or in, in five or six days so you know there really isn't any any chance there when it comes so i think it's frustrating from really all sides what i have seen that is it seems like a good idea but it's kind of along the lines of what drew said it's more of an of an aftercare thing so the agency that i work for and i'm sure a lot of different agencies maybe even in uh, hillsborough County is that a lot of times for these calls who are dispatchers, not only are police officers, but also a master's level mental health uh, clin- clin- clinician. But even in those cases where that master's level clinician is dispatched and on scene, they actually don't make contact with anyone until the situation is safe. So because this guy wasn't under control, he wasn't in custody, he wasn't ever where police officers could make the situation safe. So even in, I, I see it as the best thing that you know police departments have come up with, it wouldn't have mattered in a case like this because there, there was never a single point where this guy was in a, in a position where they're going to let uh, an unarmed civilian have any contact with him. Um, so that's a long way of me saying that this is a, a complicated problem. Everybody is frustrated and even are the best ideas that law enforcement leaders and mental health professionals have had, I, I, I don't think are a perfect solution. I, I think you summed it up very well. We mentioned this uh, in, a, in a recent episode where 988 is uh, being overrun and frustrated because people will rely on their services to deal with acute problems and then they're referred to services that it's incumbent upon them to go get those things for themselves. Uh, but, you know, even even someone like me who has no or reduced mental health problems, I'm not very good at following through on the things that I need to do for myself. But it's also a, a symptom or a sign of mental health problems that you're not able to properly take care of yourself. So you're able to, not able to seek these things out. So it's sort of a problem that constantly uh, makes its makes itself worse. Uh, I liked your comment that uh, the mental health responders, had they been dispatched to this call, they would have done nothing other than uh, been uh, more witnesses 
to this guy turning around. Um, and case in point, uh, they might have been in the in the car that got hit. They would have been injured as well. Yeah. Uh, I I remember uh, well the la- over the last few years, people saying that uh, the police should be defunded. And uh, to domestic crises and things like that, we should have counselors and mental health responders and uh, clinicians, uh, counselors. Uh, I remember one of them approaching me about it and they're like, has anyone asked us if we want to go? Because when uh, when we get that, when we get a call from a patient, when we have a voicemail on our machine of one of our clients saying, hey, I'm holding a gun to my head right now. The first thing they do is call the police. They don't call that patient. They don't get in the car and drive over to the patient. I don't think that it's mental health professionals that are itching to get into this fight. I think that they well understand that uh, police officers have a role to play in a dangerous situation. And frankly, the danger is the reason why you you all are impelled to get involved in the first place, because it's it's not a matter of of enforcing the law to deal with that. Um, it's, it's it's extremely frustrating. Um, gentlemen, do you guys have any final thoughts, Drew, uh, on this? I feel like we've we've covered it pretty well, but go yeah. ahead. I had uh, I, I wrote a Substack article about. Uh, police officer suicide and towards the end of it I, I you know you jog my memory on something and, and there's a reason I'm telling you this part of it but it says uh, I, I was asking you know it, like I went through the lament of, of a police officer and you know why the, why it's so prevalent in the profession and and it was all my opinion I mean uh, and it came from the opinion of someone who's been suicidal I mean I don't know I don't know what what better qualifies me but um so I said, uh, what are the answers? I don't know what the answers are, but I know I'm tired of hearing this is what you signed up for. Uh, maybe we had it in the back of our minds, but you never know until you know. There's no course on 24-hour hypervigilance or how to process pulling a child out of a pool and unsuccessfully doing CPR as the family screams at you. Our family certainly didn't sign up for those side effects. And there's no class to prepare you for the fatigue of working all night and going to juvenile court until noon the next next day. Uh, you got to be back at work in a couple uh, hours, so you better be ready to be perfect with only three hours of sleep. And let's just table the fact that your efforts did nothing in solving the juvenile justice problem since you encountered the same kid doing the same thing on the next shift. And there are plenty of studies, by the way, on that tie the level of exhaustion with depression, poor work performance, but rarely is it readily in context in a conversation about day three of a three straight 12 hour midnight shift rotation. Now, the reason I'm bringing this up is uh, just as much as I'll sing the praises of, of the, the sheriff that I used to work with. There are some other administrators who got a hold of this article and, and shit all over it. And they were upset and they were saying, this is what we signed up for. Uh, and to them, I officially say, fuck you. I don't. I don't think you could present that video and then uh, and then say, okay, uh, did you have the next one? Then I mean, since you signed up for it, I guess I guess we'll dispatch you to the next call. It's yeah. not reasonable. You assume a certain amount of risk and a certain amount of danger, and you know that every day you put on your uniform and go to work. Uh, when I was a correctional officer, I used to sort of ruminate on on how we could have a bad day that you know would ruin the rest of my life or possibly get me killed. Uh, we were in those situations very often, and it wouldn't always have to just be a riot for that to be the case but i i didn't sign up to get killed at the prison either um daniel any any final thoughts on the on the argument of you signed up for this i know you covered it very well yeah i mean i guess the last thing i want to say about this case is there is just a mounting library of evidence to refute the claim that police officers are racist or heavy-handed or looking for any excuse to use force against someone and this video this should lead that 
I appreciate that remark. Uh, I know that uh, Deputy Santos has said that he uh, he his anxious to get back to duty. I think that says something about the character of police officers as well. Um, I could say this in a broad sweeping sense and not just on the comments of one man. Um, I know that he said uh, Corporal uh, Brito also wants to get back to work. Uh, a brief story for me. Uh, we had a line of duty death in the prison where I worked. Uh, an officer was killed. Two inmates uh, then attempted escape. Uh, a correctional officer confronted them at an exterior gate and uh, recognizing them as not being correctional officers as they had taken the uh, the fallen officer's uniform, a fight ensued. Uh, he was hospitalized and uh, he uh, came back and he finished the shift. We were on permanent lockdown. We were in a situation where we, where we were being told uh, your shifts uh, don't don't end at this point. You know, we're building up staff. We're calling in people from other shifts to work. We're going to fill the prison up with correctional officers. And I'll never forget when he came back and his he was covered in bandages and bruises, uh, but he would not have it said and that he did that he went home that day. He wanted to show the inmates inside the facility that there's nothing that you can do that was going to prevent me from doing my job. I'm not going to be bullied. I'm not going to be pushed and I'm not going to be beaten out of doing it. Uh, to this day, he remains a hero of mine. He actually got the uh, Correctional Officer Medal of Honor. That thing exists, and he does have it. Um, however, I will say that uh, it affected him greatly. Um, I don't think he was ever the same person after that. And I, I don't think that he's a Correctional Officer anymore. So I guess I caution people who have that attitude. I think it's very praiseworthy. But just making sure you're continuing to take care of yourself. I'll be mentioning in the chats earlier. Uh, that uh, trauma exists. These these guys are going to be dealing with physical scars, physical pain, but they're going to be dealing uh, with emotional and, me and mental and psychological trauma. Um, I, I would wager, and I don't mean this to be salacious, but how many times these guys are going to wake up in the middle of the night in a cold sweat because they, they think a vehicle's driving at them uh, to relive something like that. I, I hope that that doesn't happen to them, but I wouldn't be surprised, Drew. Yeah, I mean, you... you he started to get flooded when he heard the tires squealing in his head. Um, and, and that's, you know, that, that's where we, we sing the praises of things like EMDR and, and all these other things that, you know, help you draw out that kind of traumatic stuff. But you're, you're absolutely right. Like th there's, th would you expect to have a normal dream for the rest of your life? I mean, you know, like I'm floating on a rainbow with, you know, in a fucking soda fountain. Um, like it's just, it doesn't, it's not reality. Abby is asking questions and I think we should maybe just do a whole other show about this, about being medically retired, which is a complete myth. Uh, I'm, I'm not aware of a medical retirement though. Everybody always talks about the medical retirement. There is no mythical medical retirement. There is disability uh, where, you know, you, you're going to have to fight to get every penny or every percentage. And also, you know, sometimes uh, people are insured. Um, so, you know, they'll recover 50% of their salary or 75% of their salary. But, um, you know, it, for the for the civilian folk or for anybody else that thinks that if you get hurt in the line of duty, that they just wave a magic wand and, and you get full salary and you just get to stay home and recover and it doesn't work that way. Like you, you generally have to use your accruals and, and you have to be back by a certain number of calendar days or you're considered not fit for duty. And then they take it to the next step from there. And it's a very, very harrowing process for the officer because it strips their identity. And it's also a very uh, gut wrenching uh, process for the human resources people that have to carry it out it, it, or, or, you know, 
um, risk management or whoever has to do it. It's, it's not, it's not something you probably just go home and uh, laugh off. You'd probably drink that one away. So mm. I, um, I knew it. I knew an officer who was, he was on his lunch break, which is unfortunate because it doesn't count as something that happened in duty, but uh, he had a spiral fracture up his, uh, his entire leg and he was hospitalized for so long that he used up all of his uh, sick leave. And there was some sort of a state donation emergency pay where people could donate their sick hours to him. And we all chipped in to the extent that we were allowed to. And eventually that ran out. And I think there was a period where he was allowed to be retained as an employee unpaid. And then eventually they had to fire him because he couldn't return to duty. And I, I'm not sure how that works differently than uh, something that happens in the line of duty. But I, I just know that it's it's the the safety net that you think is in place for you at, after a grievous injury may not be as helpful as you think. No, that's not. Um, so let me address the, uh, just a couple things here. We are available on YouTube on our own YouTube channel. It's called The Com Center. Uh, we are available. We're still, you know, simulcasting on failure to stop because that's the, that's the network uh, we're currently on. We're going to be taking a break next week because it's Thanksgiving. Is, is next week Thanksgiving? It is. Yep. <laughs> we're going to be taking a break next week. Uh, probably. Th so this may be the last time that we're on failure to stop network on this show on comp center. Comp center is not going away. It's just moving to a different venue. We're going to have our own, um, YouTube channel, you, you, a lot of the people that are in the chat are the same people that are in our Facebook group or our, our, our Facebook page, actually, which is the preferred method. Uh, so uh, look us up on, on Facebook and uh, Instagram, the underscore com underscore center on Instagram. Uh, it's the best way to keep up with us, but you can go to the comm center on uh, YouTube. We're available on Rumble as the comm center with Drew, Breezy, and John, maybe. Uh, and I know uh, he doesn't like that very much. We are available <laughs> as a podcast on Spotify. We're still available on the Failure to Stop Network, but going forward, uh, we're probably going to just be available on Spotify and on Apple uh, uh, Podcast as our own podcast. This is not a negative thing. This is this is not a bad thing. This is nothing has happened. If you're waiting for some tea to spill. Uh, it's uh, nothing more than a decision that Eric and I discussed that I wanted to take this to um, its own entity. I think that the the importance uh, sometimes gets lost in the shuffle of five or six other shows. And it's no slight on the work that we all do uh, for you for free, basically, on uh, on failure to stop. But I think that we could, you know, we could probably do a lot more with this if it were its own show. And that's all we're doing. So, uh, look, I, I would love for you to subscribe to our YouTube channel like right now. I would love for you to subscribe to our Rumble channel, uh, subscribe to the podcast. So it, so you download it every time we're going to, you know, just start uploading them uh, to both places. Um, and that's that, um, you know, just, yeah. just going forward. The, you know, this is probably the last time that we'll be on. Uh, the failure to stop channel. So you're still going to find us Thursday nights unless John and I, you know, figure, figure something out. Like he gets tired of missing Thursday night football. Uh, then, uh, you know, we'll figure it out, but we're not going anywhere. No, there's, there's a lot of details to figure out in terms of uh, the timing and, uh, and things like that. So it's, some of it's still kind of up in the air, uh, but you're not, we're not going to disappear for any length of time. We're going to be here. Uh, I, I will say though, in terms of leaving the network, um, when 
Mike the Cop and Eric Tanzi started this. They assembled the Wolfpack. They assembled all of you. And the only reason why we're able to do this is because you're here. I will say that when Mike retired, it left uh, a vacancy. And Eric Tanzi graciously uh, brought me on board. Uh, I had no, I had never done anything before. And I, and I, I was put in this position where he's entrusting me with a business uh that had someone as influential as Mike the cop. And I'm, I'm a nobody like, okay, like there's a dog that has more followers than Instagram than I do. Right. We joke about that all the time. But <laughs> what that was is a, a wonderful thing uh, in, for me. And it was a wonderful, uh, it was a kindness and a, and a gracious act for Eric to say, this is a place where we have followers. We have a built in audience. We have a mission. We have a message to share. And we have other talented people that can come here and do this. And as the comm center departs and other things come in, I want you to keep in mind that there's more talent out there. There's more people that can come in here and say new things about what we all care about in new and interesting ways. And so if, if comm center just steps into its own parallel thing, what comes in to take its place is more opportunities for us to talk about a society that wants to defund the police, uh, to change policing as we know it, and there's going to be here, there's going to be people here that refute that and tell the truth, people like Daniel, people like Drew, and people like me. And so uh, this is a good change and you shouldn't be worried about it. Uh, we should be excited about it. So just wanted to personally thank Eric uh, for giving me a shot based on nothing at all. I have no idea why, why I did that. The first time I ever talked to Jason Kiefer, I said, I'm being hired to do a podcast because I can draw. It makes no sense. I don't understand. <laughs> You'll never hear me uh, not tell the story of how Eric Tanzi gave me my shot. There's, there's no two ways about it. He, he completely took a chance on me. So I, pre I always, uh, I always appreciate that, and I always try to uh, return the favor tenfold. So we're, yeah. uh, we're doing what we do, and then we'll figure it out from here. I, I think you know, uh, when Mike left, if you, if you all re will remember right, maybe you can watch some of those past episodes from. Uh, failure to stop 2.0 we did discuss that this was a one-year you know deal to see where we were going to take things and uh I, I like where we've gone we we've we're at over 750,000 downloads for the channel uh but the 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 key fact in this is that we're going uh from march to present meaning we're not going from january to present we're going from march to present because that's when we uh switched um uh, podcast providers, yeah. meaning if you'd prorate that, we're going to be up over a million downloads this year. And it's, it blows me away. It's, it's amazing to me that a million of you, uh, have fallen for my bullshit. You know what I mean? <laughs> so I, I really, uh, I really love and appreciate and, uh, will give back, uh, anything I can to, uh, but especially to the people of, uh, the, the, the dispatchers of the world, because I really think that they are underrepresented. And I think that we're in a good position to change uh, people's minds. Yeah. And I, I want to do that. Um, yeah. And uh, I'm really not going anywhere to those. Anyone, anyone who's really broken up about me going away, which I know none of you are, I'll still be here on Tuesdays and we're working on, uh, on programming. You may have heard Eric mention something about sports, but it's uh, we're a first responder channel where we talk about uh, first responder issues. So it'll always be through the lens of that. We're never going to just have a show where uh, we're not talking about those things. And, and Kiefer has been itching to talk about uh, firefighter stuff. And 
uh, he, teaming up with me as a dispatcher, if that's what happens, uh, it's not 100% that that may be what comes true, uh, then that could be good. If uh, we get somebody else who's more interested in the job than him, uh, then uh, we'll just go that way too. But it'll be good. But Daniel, we've been talking about kind of our, our family here for a little bit. I just wanted to give you uh, one more chance just to tell everyone where they can find you. We appreciate you stepping in on this episode and talking about it. Uh, we appreciate your objectivity. It's easy to kind of get lost in the emotion, but just remind uh, anyone who's listening where they can find you. And I encourage you guys to follow Daniel because the guy's brilliant. First of all, go ahead. Daniel. Yeah. Well, I, 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 I definitely appreciate you guys having me on. You guys can follow me everywhere over at Police Law News, uh, TikTok, Instagram, Facebook. Um, I write on Substack at Police Law Newsletter. I do a live show on Fridays over on the YouTube channel, Cop Watch TV. And um, I will be retiring from my police department here in about two months. So I hope to be more of a regular character um, over here on this show, kind of like Newman on the Seinfeld show. So. Yeah, we, we, there's always room for a wacky neighbor. We, <laughs> and we'll go yeah. get some drinks down at the Regal Beagle. <laughs> Which one of us is going to have, like, have the feud with you, though? I, we'll have to decide that off the air. Hello, uh, Daniel. Hello, Daniel. <laughs> All right, guys. Well, we're going to uh, end the show for the night. We have some voicemails, but, uh, you know, uh, I will actually still play those. Um, uh, we'll just save them for another night. Uh, Brittany and uh, Bosco and uh, David all called in. But running a little long, let's uh, go ahead and call it a night. And we'll see you next time. Guns up. Giddy up. Good night, America. Hundred episodes, thousands, hundred episodes, thousands of episodes, hundred shows, Donkey Kong. <laughs>